0: This is Design Matters with Debbie Millman from designobserver.com. On this program, Debbie Millman talks with Scott Lerman about his long career leading brand consultancies, about his new step-by-step book about brand strategy, and about how consumer research can limit innovative thinking. Chances are there's no research which inspires them to think about the company in a new way. There's almost certainly no research that makes them think, we should change the nature of how we communicate who we are and what we stand for. (laughs) Here's Debbie Mullman.
1: If you're a consultant and you've helped companies like American Express, Xerox, and Harley Davidson sort out their branding and identity strategies, you probably have quite a few things to say about branding and identity. If you've led two of the world's leading brand consultancies and founded a consultancy of your own, you probably have quite a bit to say about the business of branding and identity. And if you've written a book called Building Better Brands, a comprehensive guide to brand strategy and identity development, well, I think it's safe to say that you're an expert who actually practices what he preaches. I'm talking about Scott Lehrman, who is also a colleague of mine in the Masters in Branding program at the School of Visual Arts in New York City, where he joins me now. Scott, welcome to Design Matters. Thanks for having me here. So I understand you're currently seeking a client with a corporate name that starts with Q. Why is that?
0: One of the things that happens when you work with many companies over the years is you begin to wonder, what haven't I seen? What haven't I done? (laughs) Ha-ha. This is going to be a good conversation. (laughs) And as you know, when you're a brand consultant, you get to go deep into the wilds of many industries, I have a couple of regrets. One is I haven't been able to do a program with a major airline. The other is I've never worked with a company whose name starts with Q. Okay, we need to get you hooked up with Qantas. I mean, that would just kill two birds with one stone. It, it would, and I'm not sure I'm in a race to finish the alphabet, but when you're always seeking new experiences and trying to challenge yourself to go into one more place you've never been, you're, you're looking for the next territory, and I'm, I'm looking for a Q.
1: So you have done work then for every letter of the alphabet except Q. AMD, Bayer, Caterpillar, DuPont, Engelhard, First Data, Grand Brands, Harley-Davidson, Invista, JCPenney, Kodak, Lycos, MTA, National Semiconductor, Owens, Illinois, PNC Bank, Reader's Digest, Swift, Towers Perrin, U.S. Mint, Vios, Washington Center, Xerox, Yola, and Zachary.
0: Just to name a few.
1: (laughs) That's amazing. 26, if you include 3M. Huge brands. How did this happen? You were born in Hackensack, New Jersey. You grew up in Chappaqua. When did the urge to redesign global brands first set in?
0: It didn't. I went to Cooper Union to be a painter, to be a printmaker, to be a photographer, And I did study graphic design, but wasn't really very intrigued by it. Why? I felt most of it was very shallow. There wasn't a lot of strategic thinking. It seemed very driven by single people running studios with their own creative vision. But I wanted to be a fine artist, not an applied artist. I didn't know what I was talking about. I didn't understand the nature of what it could be.
1: And so when you were in Cooper Union, did you graduate with a degree in fine art?
0: Cooper doesn't have majors. So I graduated with enough credits probably to have a major in design as well as in fine art if you went to a different school. But what was more important is I was going to be a painter where you can't earn a living, and I had to earn a living. So I was working doing custom black-and-white photographic printing, got tired of the dark, quit my job one afternoon— and called my friend, Michael, at Chermayev and Geismar. I didn't know that Chermayev and Geismar was one of the leading design for didn't know for they Intenor. were Chermayev and Geismar. I, I'm pretty sure I couldn't pronounce their name at the time. <laughs> but I called up and said, Michael, I'm quitting my job.
1: Now, you were working at a top New York City custom lab at the time. Was it Dugal?
0: No, it was modern age.
1: Oh, OK, so right down the block. And so you then called your friend. This is 1981. And you say, hey, I'm coming over, plot a desk out for me or something like that. I mean, how, how does that happen?
0: It just happened that way. I went over that afternoon. They found me a desk, and I started doing paste-up and mechanicals.
1: Now, when you were there, that was when they were really sort of becoming famous, becoming the sort of legendary agency
0: that they still are. How big was the company? They were about 40 people, maybe 50 people. They were doing the mobile Masterpiece Theater posters. Ivan Tremayev would come in, tear up a lot of paper, make an image, and one of the other guys who did Paste the Mechanicals, his job was to paste down the pieces of paper before they blew away, and they would become a Masterpiece Theater poster. Tom Geismar had just done the mobile identity a few years before. They were working with IBM on a refresh of that identity. They were doing display and exhibit work. It was a very interesting place.
1: Did you leave Chermayev and Geismar thinking, I want to be like Chermayev and Geismar? How did they influence you?
0: What they did was they convinced me that there was something going on, which was in applied arts, which was fascinating. And they were going to renovate the offices and said it might slow down. I was a full-time freelancer. So I called up my same friend, Michael Caradonna, who had gone to Siegel & Gale and said... Wow,
1: that guy's pretty adventurous.
0: He was very adventurous. And I said, it may be slow. Can I come and work over there? And I went over to Siegel & Gale and started to work there. And 17 years later, I was the president of the firm.
1: Right. You held a range of positions over the years, and you went from project manager to designer to creative director to managing director and then to president of the firm. Let's just talk a little bit about that journey. You started at Siegel & Gale. Um, One of the partners was Alan Siegel. So you you go from working for these two, like, sort of iconic designers in New York, and then you go to an iconic thinker and doer and maker and influencer with uh, working for Alan Siegel. What was it like?
0: For me, it was a place where if I was interested in it, I could do it. If I could push things, they would let me. I don't know if you have ever met Alan Siegel, but he likes ideas. And he was very interested in whatever it is I thought I could bring to this firm, which made no sense. I had no real training. You were a pay up artist. I was a pay up artist. <laughs> and every year, I would pick a new job, and I would choose a new direction, and he would let me go there.
1: It's pretty rare in this day and age to stay at a company for as long as you did at Siegel & Gale. How did you go from position to position? How did you keep getting promoted? What did you do
0: to get ahead there? I would say I was driven by curiosity. The first day that I went there to visit with Michael Caradonna, they had someone going on vacation who was working in simplified communications, taking complex form systems and making them understandable. I knew nothing about it. And they said, can you help us with creating a new set of forms for general Accident insurance? Do you know how to do that? And I said, yes. I had no idea what they were talking about. You
1: <laughs> can never say no in those instances ever. So never say no.
0: But even in that first assignment, I changed the way that they created those materials.
1: And was it because you had no preconceived notion of what they should or could be and you were able to sort of free think how it could be solved?
0: Absolutely. And it was boring. I thought there was a better way to do this. As you know, in many places, you may get slapped down for challenging the way things are done. They appreciated it. So I took that attitude into developing the first interactive corporate identity manual. I took it into creating a true consultancy there, which was, as you know, not the way things were done. We were designers. The notion of doing strategic definition for major corporations seemed very presumptuous. But I didn't know any better, and no one ever stopped me.
1: So you got to evolve a small identity company, essentially, into a global strategic branding firm. Was there a sense that that's what you wanted to do, or did it sort of end up that way based on your capabilities and your strengths as a leader?
0: Well, I want to be careful here because I wasn't the only one there. And the kind of people that were attracted to Siegel and Gale were like me. So there were many like-minded, inventive people. And together, we were pushing the boundaries of what could be done. So it wasn't just about what I did. The other thing that was happening was the field, as you know, in general was evolving. So we were being pushed by the changes in technology. We were being pushed as colleagues to do things. And I was allowed to do whatever I thought might advance the firm.
1: So you were first appointed president after Siegel & Gale bought itself back from the advertising agency Saatchi and & Saatchi. And at the time, I understand your goal was to refocus the firm back on identity work. Um, first, what had it evolved to at that point? And what was it like to buy yourself back from a huge advertising agency?
0: Well, the Saatchis, as you know, invented the whole idea of these multimedia below-the-line firms joining advertising agencies in public markets. They never really paid that much attention to us. We were very successful. We grew quickly. We were profitable. But they were demerging. They were falling apart, and they were selling off pieces. And we were told that we would be merged into one of the agencies and spun off. It didn't make sense to us to not remain independent, at least in the sense of the kind of firm we were. So that's why we looked toward buying ourselves back.
1: And what was the morale like through that? Were you feeling that you were all mavericks, sort of rescuing the brand? I remember when Celestial Seasonings bought themselves back from craft. There was
0: this sense of, we're free, we're free. Not at all. As I said, they were absentee landowners. They weren't oppressive. They didn't interfere with the way we ran the firm. But something else was happening. We weren't interested in making the firm go back to being a design firm. We were design we were also becoming what we would say is a branding consultancy, but new media was really the driver. We had built a new media practice, and working with top corporations, we saw huge value being generated. So we were quite enthusiastic about it. So
1: then you left Siegel & Gale in 2001. You left Siegel and & Gale and went on to become president and CEO of Enterprise IG Americas, which is now called the Brand Union where you remained until 2005. And while you were there, you helped DuPont create and spin off Invista, its $6.2 billion synthetics fibers business. How do you even begin
0: a project like that? What's so fascinating to me about doing corporate branding is it's not about numbers of people. It isn't about brute force. There were three to five people who were really the drivers of that program. This was a complex issue. DuPont was merging literally four of its businesses and then spinning them off.
1: Why? Why did they want to do
0: that? Is it all sort of a money game? It was money. They were all their businesses related to fibers, which are not growth businesses. So they were going to dump them and get the cash from them and then move on. But if you're a DuPonter who's been there in a founding business for 40 years, for 30 years, you're a senior leader, you're losing your identity. And we had to both give them a sense of what they could be and a pride and enthusiasm about that and make them attractive to the public markets. What makes a project like this interesting to you? It's about the place. And you may have noticed in the list you read, there are a number of companies, Caterpillar, 3M, American Express, Harley-Davidson, These are great old brands, so I look at them as institutions, as something that we're here to be stewards of and to prepare for the future. This business was going to be sold. How did we find a voice for it? How did we create an identity that would allow it to be a great company into the next century? How did you do that? We did it by pushing aside what had happened over the last 10 or 15 years where textiles were declining in the US. And we began to look at the nature of what they had and who they were that no one else could match. And what we found was that there was no other company who had the ability to, from the molecule that was designed by the molecular scientists to the fibers that they could build out of those molecules, to the processes to make new kinds of fabrics and clothes and materials to the applications that those could be used for, to the brands, whether it was Coolmax, Lycra, or StainMaster, that no other company on earth could come close to delivering from the molecule to the marketplace. We were looking for the truth and a compelling truth within this organization that they could find their pride in and that they could sell in the marketplace.
1: Let's go back in time. Let's go back to when you first were appointed president and CEO of Enterprise IG. How do you go from being president of one company for 18 years to suddenly taking the helm of another company? How do you make that transition?
0: The reason why I was interested in Enterprise IG, which is a WPP company, was unlike the Saatchis. The WPP family of companies were being managed very tightly by Martin Sorrell. I was fascinated by the notion that a very well-managed network with this kind of diverse resources perhaps could do things that we couldn't do as pretty much a standalone company at Saatchi & Saatchi. And scale really means a lot in an identity firm. It can mean a lot. And it seemed that that was worth exploring. I had been through a process at Siegel & Gale where I often said to Alan Siegel that he invented the idea of corporate voice and I helped to operationalize it. So I spent a lot of time trying to figure out not just how to observe that some companies have an ability to communicate who they are and what they are and what they can do like no other, and it just works. How do you actually do that when the company can't do that naturally? So I felt I had developed frameworks and approach which I could bring elsewhere. And that was really true. What took me seven or eight years or 10 years, or maybe it was 17 years at Siegel & Gale, I thought in a couple of years I was able to bring to Enterprise IJ. And so then you
1: left to start your own firm.
0: I did. What was it like to go
1: from president of one of the largest and most respected consultancies to starting a small shop of your own?
0: It was scary. I had no idea whether or not I would be one of those people who, a year later, would be developing PowerPoint shows and menu designs. (laughs) Not that there's anything wrong with those things, but I hear you. Well, first of all, I'm not sure I would be very good at menu design. But for me, it was an open question whether or not the changes in the way the world worked, the changes in what technology enabled, would allow someone like me to walk out of Enterprise IG or Siegel & Gale and work with Fortune 500 companies. Would they accept, given their global infrastructure, someone who had himself, his partner, and various people I knew who I could work with around the world, would that be an acceptable infrastructure for taking on the next Invista? And was it? It was. I began working with Owens, Illinois, with Englehart, with, as you can imagine, I knew many of these corporate entities already. But it's still a big leap for them to trust that they can turn this over to what we would call a man and a dog. So in the grand scheme of things, then, size really doesn't matter. It doesn't. One of the lessons I learned from being at Enterprise was for a client like Vodafone, where we had offices across Europe and Asia, where we were able to bring an infrastructure to a global corporation, which produced work in all of those markets with consistency, the scale of that company and its many offices was extremely valuable. For others, it was irrelevant. Again, we could do an INVISTA project with five people. So what difference did it make if there were all of those offices, all of that infrastructure? So that was part of what I realized and gained from working, again, in a very global situation in a top firm was... The nature of how we did the work had changed to a point where we didn't need all that infrastructure.
1: You recently published your first book, Building Better Brands, a comprehensive guide to brand strategy and identity development. And congratulations, it's really quite a marvelous book. I've read that you said that the book's purpose is to take a daunting task, the evolution or creation of a brand, and make it approachable, understandable, and successful. Do you think you've done that?
0: Time will tell. I've worked with so many people in these corporations who were middle managers, who were given the task of recasting a major brand, who've risen to the occasion and done extraordinary things, changed the nature of these companies. I felt that During that process, there was a lot of uncertainty and fear. There was a sense of not knowing what was coming next. And I thought a book like this, if it did nothing else, would be a guide for those who were handed this daunting task. Teaching with you in the Master's of Branding program here at SVA, clearly we're seeing a need to train a new generation of brand stewards, of people who are going to create and maintain brands at a different level. we only get to teach, what, 25, 27 a year. So we could extend some of that learning to other people. But we'll see. I'm, I'm waiting to hear back. I'm very interested in whether those who are taking on branding projects are finding that the book helps them to do a better job, to feel more confident and to accomplish what they need to.
1: Actually, when I was reading it, I was starting to get a little uncomfortable because I thought it was giving too much away. (laughs) Like, leave it to the professionals. You don't need this book necessarily to, you know, ruin it for us all. But in any case, let's talk a little bit about it. You start the book with this provocative statement, every organization, every brand must grow. Why is that? Why can't companies simply stay the same size?
0: I suppose there are those who do run in place, but they're still running. We live in a universe where you either move forward or you dissipate. I don't know of any company whose goal is to stay the same.
1: You go on to say that even the best, especially the best companies, begin to unravel a bit as they evolve. It's a natural outgrowth of growth. So my question, Scott, is why do they unravel and how do you actually manage the unraveling?
0: When you talk to people at a company who are succeeding, they're busy. They're creating new ideas. They're often acquiring other companies. So it's like a jungle that's just growing and thriving. It helps now and then to make it into a garden, to go back and say, How do we reorganize what we have in ways that are more understandable, that are more accessible, that are more compelling to outside audiences?
1: Why does a company need to work with corporate identity consultants? Aside from the creation of a logo, you talk about how much of the work that you've done has not resulted in a new identity. What is the work behind the scenes that a corporate identity consultant actually does for a company if it isn't designing a logo?
0: There are a few things that happen when you bring in a consultancy. One is we have access that very few have, that we're granted an ability to talk to, to interview, to poke our noses into every aspect of what a company does. No one in the company has time to do that. No one is in charge of thinking about the nature of the company who has the time that we do to go in and say, what's really happening here and what could happen that would be more successful? We bring that knowledge back to a leadership team and give them a sense of themselves that they wouldn't discover necessarily on their own. So
1: why does a company call a brand identity
0: consultant in the first place? It's driven by change. Change could be we are acquiring a company. We are merging. We are entering a new market. A new competitor has risen up because of technology that seems to be able to eat our lunch. So something is making people think, times have changed, the nature of the company's changing, our markets are changing, how do we cope with change? And often it's very positive change. It's not just, we're having a crisis, Crisis we're not. Crisis management. In fact, it's rarely crisis management. It almost always is a crisis created in the best sense, which is the crisis of creation, the crisis of innovation, the crisis of opportunity.
1: Why do you think that we're living in a culture now where there seems to be so much resistance to corporate change? It seems to me that we're living in a time where any logo redesign is open to uh, mass criticism or change.org petitions, things that you'd never consider seeing or even having to contend with
0: 10 years ago. What changed? I often agree with those things. (laughs) A corporate reputation, a corporate brand, is something that is built over time. I would counsel companies to be very careful about jettisoning the equity they have, the recognition they have and the signs and symbols that they use. You really have to ask yourself, who is the corporation speaking to? What does this sign and symbol really have meaning for in terms of its commercial activities? And for those audiences... Sometimes we're trying to be provocative. We need to shake them from the sense that we are what we have always been, and we have to. We have to provoke a reaction if we're going to begin to have them consider or reconsider who we are. When I worked with um, Gil Emilio at National Semiconductor, who also was briefly CEO of Apple Computer, we weren't going to change the identity of National, which was the last great American semiconductor company from its time, They said, don't change that. We're we're fine with it. We ultimately did, and there was a lot of pushback internally. And he said to me, we're going to change it because they have to change, and I want them to have nowhere to go back. He was very aware that this ambitious symbol meant people were going to look at them and say, what's changed? He wanted them to ask that question.
1: You created a framework that anyone can follow when— creating, reinvigorating, redesigning a brand. And you have created that framework via eight steps. And I'll read the steps. Frame, brainstorm, organize, characterize, distill, craft, validate, and finalize. And obviously, you go through in-depth descriptions and have lots of different examples. How did you come up with this framework?
0: I couldn't have done it consciously one of the hardest things to do is to know how you make decisions. It's effortless for us often to accomplish things, but it's very difficult for us to explain to others how they should do it. So a couple of things happened with the book. One is that I understand the nature of what has to be defined in a brand. You have to talk about who you are. So character is incredibly important. You have to define where you choose to compete. So arena is very important because with Arena, you now know who am I competing with and who are my audiences. We know strategic positioning, which is how am I different than others? So you can step through those and people can understand, I see how those elements are important to the nature of the relationship we could have with potential customers, with new employees, with partners. What's harder to do is to say, How do you workshop and take a groom full of people who already feel like you're wasting their time (laughs) and engage them in something that's really interesting and productive for them? So doing workshops with corporations, I started to write down what were we doing and what were the elements of those workshops. In working with the students here at SVA, it's another chance for me to say, how can I explain that? Step one is actually this, step two is that. So I can do it without thinking about it, but that won't help you to do it. So I spent quite a bit of time trying to dissect what was happening while we were doing what we've done dozens of times with companies in order to reach ideas that they could act on.
1: Let's talk about one of the most controversial topics in branding, research. And I'm going to read a paragraph from your book because I think it really does frame the inherent issues that are very much a part of research methodology. So you write, Most organizations conduct research of one kind or another. Anthropological research that provides an observed view of how people actually behave. Qualitative research that provides clues and spurs ideas, but offers no statistical certainty quantitative research that is designed to provide a predictive view of how larger groups think and will behave, and occasionally census research that attempts to poll each and every member of a specialized group. In research-savvy cultures, reality and perception may be aligned. But in some organizations, research is a poorly vetted, thinly-veiled justification to support partisan views— Part of your job is to clarify whether existing research is sound or suspect. Now, Scott, I have been in hundreds, maybe thousands of focus groups over the decades, and most of the research that I have witnessed is that poorly vetted, thinly veiled justification to support views, so research that is essentially conducted to Validate a point of view that somebody wants to be sure goes to market. If part of your job as a brand consultant is to clarify whether existing research is sound or suspect and you believe that it's suspect,
0: what do you do? One of the things that we do, which I think is most valued by clients, is we have enough experience to tell them the truth. We have no objective issue. We don't care whether or not a company is master-branded or is a house of brands. We don't care whether or not the key messages are best in support of one business or another. Our job is to make all the parts successful and to make the whole successful in the long run. So it gives us a certain ability to walk in and say, we'll review every single research study that you've done. We'll look for what insight it can bring us. But in the end, we're not going to necessarily take that to the table as what drives this program. But I have to say this about research. We are trying to involve people in decisions about the nature of what their company is going to be known for and how it's going to develop in the future. Chances are there's no research that they have which inspires them to think about the company in a new way there's almost certainly no research that makes them think we should change the nature of how we communicate who we are and what we stand for. (laughs) Can you imagine somebody in a folks group saying that? Usually research is being used as a diagnostic for a very small part of what we're going to do this month, this year. We're looking at larger issues. We're there to recast brands, revitalize brands, or build new brands. So we're looking for a complete thought that can drive the company for a decade. That's just a different task, and research that exists tends to be helpful in giving us some sense of what might be there, but in itself is not gonna be the answer to any of the big questions.
1: In addition to all of the work that you present in building better brands, you also have wonderful anecdotal stories about some of the work that you've done with some of the A to Z minus Q companies that you've worked with. And you talk about how many years ago, Harley Davidson bought a company called AMF. And this company was a world leader in bowling equipment. And at the same time, you talk about how Avon bought the upscale jewelry brand, Tiffany. And you talk about how both acquisitions were practically doomed from the start and state were often tone deaf when it comes to our own companies and brands. It's hard to imagine that anyone at Harley-Davidson thought that AMF, a world leader in bowling equipment, should control their company or, for that matter, that Avon believed they were the right people to own Tiffany. There were sound financial reasons for both transactions, but anyone thinking critically about character would have found other suitors. As you can easily imagine, both deals had to be unraveled to save all of these legendary brands. So, Scott, how did these things happen? How did these
0: big, giant brand mistakes occur? I think there's more than one reason why mistakes are made. One is, The people who are making deals aren't necessarily concerned with the culture of the company, much less its long-term success. They're dealmakers. So they're going to get their money. They're going to make their fees by completing the deal. The other is, I think, much more innocent and much more positive, which is who wouldn't want to own (laughs) Harley-Davidson? Who wouldn't want to own Tiffany? Yeah. They're inspiring. They're distinctive. They're legendary. So, you know, in the hearts of those who were making those deals, they honored those brands. I don't think it was disrespectful. I think it was incredibly respectful. They loved them and wanted them to thrive, to get past crisis, financial crisis. So I, th- I think there's a natural human notion, which is this is too great a thing to allow to wither and disappear, and there's just the momentum of deal-making, which generates a lot of cash for closing deals and acquisitions.
1: The last two questions I want to ask you have to do with advice. You included interviews with people who led the creation of Nations Bank and the New Bank of America. The spin-off of a third of DuPont's in vista and the rebranding of a small Washington not-for-profit, the Washington Center. And I was really struck by the realization that many of these people involved in the projects oversaw the creation of these branding programs without having previously done it before. So, what advice would you give to a brand consultant? that is faced with doing a project with people in large corporations that may not have done it before. What is the best way of working with someone like that?
0: Van Perry, who you mentioned, is the person who was a real estate executive in North Carolina National Bank, which became Nations Bank, which then acquired the Bank of America. His first act was to come and talk to me. And I don't mean as in interviewing us for the project. We were already working on the project. And he came to New York, we had lunch, and I asked him why he was there, what he needed to understand. He said, I need to understand you, because he was being given this task, which was beyond his particular skills and understanding, but that he was responsible for it. It was his company and his brand, and he wanted to make sure that we would be able to work together in a way where I would respect that, that I didn't think that I was there to tell him what to do. But that we were there to together take his knowledge of this company, his true concern about its success, and that I would be manageable in that process. So whether or not he would have picked me, I thought, this is exactly right. He is about to go on this journey. Choose your traveling companions carefully. I thought that was, that was a first where someone came in and said, I'm not taking the job of running this internally until I've met the people who we've hired to help us as consultants. But
1: what advice would you give to people like you that were faced with working with people like that, having not had that background before? I mean, this is a a particularly successful case of somebody being open-minded and sort of agile in their thinking. What about somebody that doesn't quite know that they don't know what they're doing?
0: Well, a couple of things. I mean, you asked me earlier why I wrote the book. I wrote it for this reason is, I think you need to have a sense of, what's going to happen and what the process is. But just as important is take the shot. And I said this recently to someone that I'm working with who is very concerned about taking a role within their corporation which is beyond them. And what I said to her is this is an opportunity you're going to get once, maybe twice in your lifetime. You're going to get to have access to everyone at the senior level in this corporation. Take it. Talk to them. Listen to them, do your best. Why wouldn't you take this chance? Because what does happen is if you're smart and if you listen and if you choose the right traveling companions and you succeed, you will never go back to what you did before.
1: So, my last question is this What advice would you give a designer or a creative person looking to get
0: involved in the world of branding? It's not about design. I think, is the first thing, and it's very hard to accept. And I'm a designer, and I still draw logos, and I love to design things. You are there to help people articulate and build brands which are beyond their design. And if you're not comfortable with that, push yourself beyond being the one who's drawing the pictures.
1: Scott, thank you for joining me today on Design Matters. Scott Lehrman's brilliant new book is Building Better Brands, a comprehensive guide to brand strategy and identity development. You can find out more about Scott on his company's website, lucidbrands.com. I'd like to thank you for listening. And remember, we can talk about making a difference, we can make a difference, or we can do both. I'm Debbie Millman, and I look forward to talking with you